We are doing the second half of the chapter this morning, beginning in verse 14. And then uh, the next two weeks, we will be away from Genesis as we go through Palm Sunday and then uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And then we'll come back in three weeks, picking it up in Genesis chapter 2, just to give you an idea of what's ahead. And then we should start to move through the book of Genesis on a pace of pretty much a chapter a week. So this morning, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, and I'll read it if you'll follow along with me. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with, uh, with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the public reading of your word. And we know that as your word goes forth, you have promised that your word will always accomplish the purpose for which you have intended it, and that it will never return void. And so, Lord, this morning, may your word stir up in our hearts and may it produce fruit that's pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are looking at the six days of creation. And last week, we began by looking at the first three days of creation. And if you can see my chart here, uh, the first three days talked about the formation or the forming of the earth and the second three days that we're going to talk about today describe the filling or the fullness of the earth. And notice as we look at the days here that day one was light and dark, day two sky and waters below, and day three the land and the plants and the fertile earth were created. But notice now that as God had created through day one the light and the dark on day four, he has sort of a reciprocal creation where he creates the lights of day and night. And we're going to talk about the significance of that. Day two, the skies and the waters. Day five, reciprocally, he filled or populated the waters through the creatures of the water and the air. 
and the birds and the fish. Then on day three, of course, the land and the plants, the fertile earth, and on day six, he created the creatures of the, the land, the animals, and he created man, and he gave plants for the food. So it's interesting how God did this, and there's a significance here that we need to be aware of this morning. Now, I'd also like to point out that I've highlighted here, as we're talking about the situation where God has created we talked last week about that God has done all of these things, that God himself is the initiator, man is the responder. And so we see here the number of places where God said, God made, he made, God set, God saw that it was good. And so God himself is doing these things. Now, I think that this is always significant to us as we think about the sovereign, righteous, holy work of God and creation. Because God set all these things into motion. God created everything that is created. Everything that we have, everything that we see, especially as we walk outside during the day or as we walk outside during the night and we look up in the, the sky and we see the sun the moon, the stars, or as we look around and we see the vegetation or we see the animals and we see the insects, those are things that God created. And it's significant for us right now during this time because we're going through a time where, to be honest, we feel like we have very little control, don't we? Everything we have pretty much has been stripped from us. Some of us have been and are being affected incredibly deeply and dramatically because of not being able to go to work or not receiving a regular paycheck. And for those of us who are, are blessed to be able to have continuance through that, then that's a blessing of God. But understand that God's in charge of these things. God has sovereignly allowed this to happen in our world and in our country just at this time. And see, in God's economy, there is a perfect timing. God said, God made. God is in charge. God is in control. And so as we consider these things this morning, let's remember the sovereign plan of God, which isn't always apparent to us, but God does have a plan. And so here, as God has done these things in the world, and he's started day four, and he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. As we consider what God has done, these are just a few of the things to consider this morning how God has created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he's set them in motion, and he's given them to us for signs and for seasons. Notice that the earth, in case you didn't know this, is set on an axis of 23.5 degrees, a tilt. And the earth and the moon and the stars are all constantly moving. And this uh, set of the earth on a, on a tilt, on a 23.5 degree axis, gives us our seasons. And we have the opposite seasons, of course, in the northern and the southern hemisphere. And if you were uh, to look at the, the elliptical orbit of the earth around the sun, you'll find out there's a period of time where we are closer to the sun and a period of time that we are further away from the sun. And that gives us our sense of, of winter and summer. And God did this. God set the earth on this axis. God determined the tilt, and he determined the hemispheric weather conditions and how all these things would happen. God set the sun and the earth precisely at a distance of 93 million miles from each other. Any closer, and we would burn up, and any further away, we would be living in an Arctic condition constantly. And then God, uh, having created the heavens and the earth and set the stars and the sun, the moon, and the galaxies into place, we have uh, this issue of astronomy versus astrology. And let me talk about that for just a brief moment. Um, astronomy is the study of the heavens, the study of the stars and the planets and their movement. Astrology is the superstitious uh, imposition that those things have a meaning for people. And if you have followed the zodiac at all, which is astrology, you know it, it labels you and me by when we were born, you know, Capricorn or, or you know, Taurus or Aries or any of those uh, 
things. They take uh, certain names of certain constellations and they apply them to us and they have a little write-up that says, if you were born during this time frame, the stars have predicted what your personality will be like and what your temperament will be like. And I'd like to say to you this morning that astrology is of the devil. Just flat out, it's straight from the pit of hell, and it's nothing but superstition. You say, well, what gives you the authority to say that? I'm just going to share one verse with you this morning out of Isaiah 47 that speaks to that. You see, this was going on way back in early biblical times. Isaiah says in Isaiah 47, beginning in verse 12, Stand now with your enchantments. This is speaking of astrology specifically. And the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth, perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. You see, there are people looking to things like this to help them make sense of times like we're living in right now. They go to the zodiac, they go to their horoscope. And God goes on to say, as he has just denounced them, Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. You see, astrology is from Satan. So if you'd like to go look up that passage later, it's Isaiah 47, 12 through 14. However, astronomy, when you take into account all that is necessary for the sustenance of life as we know it, there are few planets able to support life. Taking into account, and this is sort of a, a probability, uh, talking about how Earth is really the only place that can sustain life, taking into account factors such as our galaxy type, the location of our stars, the age of our stars, the mass, the color, the distance from the stars one to another, the tilt of the Earth's axis, the rotation period, surface gravity, tidal force, magnetic field, oxygen quantity in the atmosphere, the atmospheric pressure, and 20 other important factors, the probability of all 33 of these factors occurring and happening on any one planet and one is 10 and 10 to the 42nd power. The total number of possible planets in the universe is 10 to the 22nd power. What's the point? That God has uniquely created planet Earth for us and to sustain life as we know it. And so God did all these things as he has created in days one through three and now day four. God has set these things in motion for us. But also notice there in um, verse 14 where it says, let there be lights in the firmament. And keep in mind that back in verse 3 he said, let there be light and there was light. When God said in verse 3, let there be light, he used a different word than he used in verse 14 where he said, let there be lights, plural, in the firmament. In verse 14 he's talking about the celestial bodies, or what we might call the luminaries. And as you look up into the, the sky at night and you see the stars, obviously the stars are radiating light. And when you look up into the sky in the daytime and you see the sun, you know that the sun was put, put there to radiate light and to give us heat and to provide for the earth all of the things we look for. But back in verse 3, the term that God used was the term for light itself. You see, God created light before he created the luminaries. God created light before he created the sun and the moon. You see, that alone ought to throw the evolutionists into a tizzy because how did plant life and those kinds of things that he created on day three sustained for the millions and the billions of years that people like to talk about if the sun and the moon and the stars weren't created till day four. Well, what is light in verse three that God created before he created the bodies that give us the light? Because often we think of light as a light bulb or as the sun or as maybe the, the glow of the moon at night, which is reflecting the light of the sun. 
These are uh, physics or physical definitions of what is light. And one source has said that light is a transverse electromagnetic wave that can be seen by the typical human being or by the human eye. And then I've just put up here so you just kind of get a sense scientifically that light has a spectrum, it has frequencies, it has wavelengths, and it has energy. And God on day three said, let there be light, and God created light. Now, if you've ever doubted the creative power of God before this point, even after reading through Genesis chapter one, as you think about God creating something like light, before there was a sun, before there was a moon. And we know, as we talked about last week and the, the week before as well, that it tells us in the book of Revelation that in, in the new heaven and the new earth, the heavenly city of God, it says that the Lord God himself and the Lamb shall be its light. And that harkens back to verse three, that God created light. Well, I don't want to focus on this. I just wanted to sort of flash this up there. But again, as we talk about light, light is so complicated. Light itself is an electromagnetic spectrum going from large wavelengths to small. And so here's a listing of how light uh, propagates itself. There's radio waves, microwaves, infrared waves, visible light, ultraviolet light, X-rays, gamma rays. All of these are electromagnetic waves and they all travel at the same speed, the speed of light, which we know to be 186,000 miles per second. However, they have different interactions with matter. And God on day three spoke into existence light. He created light before there was a sun or the moon. And then this here, uh, might be a little bit difficult to see. Uh, this gives you the speed of light in kilometers per second, but it's the same number, 186,000, uh, whatever. Uh, I can't what I said. Forget what I said about minutes per second or whatever it was. Um, the earth to the moon, light travels in 1.29 seconds. From the earth to the sun, eight light minutes. From earth to Mars, 12.7 light minutes. From Earth to Proxima Centauri, the nearest star, 4.3 light years. And from Earth to the other side of our own Milky Way galaxy, 52,000 light years. Just to give you some sample of how long it takes for light to travel through our universe. And so God has done this amazing thing in creating light and then in creating the bodies of light that we know and that we understand. So all of this to emphasize the creative power of God and how amazing he is. And then on day five, God spoke again and God said, let the waters abound uh, with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves and with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So as we think now about on day five, God creating these animals and filling the earth with with birds and fish and all of the things that populate the earth. Let's talk for just a moment about evolution. Doesn't the fossil record show these creatures slowly evolved into existence instead of suddenly appearing? Now keep in mind when God spoke these things into existence and we take these things to be literal 24-hour periods of time, we don't believe in sort of the extrapolation of that these days were ages and that kind of thing. It just it doesn't make sense. Um, but th these were literal 24-hour periods. So if that's true, and we certainly believe that it is, on day five, God spoke in that next 24-hour period, and these things were created. Yet evolution says, according to fossil records, that these things evolve slowly over time. Most people are unaware that Darwin's strongest opponents were not clergymen, but fossil experts. 
Darwin admitted the state of the fossil evidence was, quote, and this is quoting Darwin, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. And because of the fossil evidence, all the most eminent paleontologists and all our greatest geologists have unanimously often vehemently maintained that the species do not change. So even Darwin recognized this and recognized that this was the Achilles heel of his postulations. The fossil record is marked by two great principles. First, the principle of stasis, which means that most species are unchanged in all their documented history. The way they look when they first appear in the fossil record is the way they look when appearing in the last fossil record. They have not changed. Second, sudden appearances, which means any, uh, in any logical area, a species does not arise gradually, but appears all at once and fully formed. Philip Johnson, an eminent uh, geologist, wrote, if evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another kind, the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is the absence of the evidence for evolution. The Bighorn Basin in Wyoming contains a continuous record of fossil deposits for what geologists say is five million years of history. Because this record is so complete, paleontologists assumed a positive trail of evolution could be found. Instead, the fossil record does not convincingly document a single transition from one species to another. So when we read that God created each thing according to its kind, that indicates to us that the, this kind would not jump over and become something else. For example, a fish wouldn't become a cheetah. So each being uh, created according to its kind, it would stay within its kind. And that's what these uh, geologists and these paleontologists are talking about who do not accept the theory of evolution. Evolutionist Niall Eldridge wrote, we paleontologists have said that the history of life in the fossil record supports the story of gradual evolution, all the while knowing that it does not. And this is one of the eminent paleontologists who was tasked, as most of them are, with upholding and proving the Darwinian theory of evolution. And yet here we are on the fifth day, and we see that God did these things, that God spoke these things into existence. Now listen with me to Psalm 93. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You, God, are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. You see, God himself, who created the sea and then later populated the sea, rules and reigns over the sea. I imagine we'll probably come back to this psalm when we get into the flood of Noah in chapter 6. But as we continue, just thinking forward now to day 6, then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, the cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle and its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God has done all these things. God continues to create. God said, God made, God saw that it was good. God said, let us, now referring to 
the triunity hidden in that word Elohim that we've talked about now a few times where Elohim refers to the plural singularity of God that God is one God manifested in three persons and he says here referring to the Godhead the Trinity let us make man in our image according to our likeness it's interesting how God did this we'll come back to that in a moment but God created the beasts, the animals, and all of those things according to their kind. He created them and they began to reproduce because God said that they should fill the earth and subdue it and that they should multiply and be fruitful. Now there's an old question that people like to ask and you know it well. And the question is this, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, according to day six, I would say it's the chicken because God created everything with life. So the chicken came first, then the egg. So now your age-old riddle is solved here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, as God created all of the living creatures and then told them to reproduce. God created the chicken first, and then the egg came forth. This phrase, according to its kind, appears ten times which is significant because God is emphasizing the fact that things do not cross over into other kinds. And then we have this declarative statement that God created man in his own image. And I don't know if you realize this, but that statement in Genesis chapter 1 is a declarative statement and that makes the incarnation possible as we think forward 2,000 years or so, something like that, from the time when this was spoken to the time when Jesus Christ appeared on the scene. Remember this amazing passage of scripture here in Philippians chapter 2. As we read it together, think about what God said here when it says that he created, he said, let us create man in our image. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, Genesis chapter 1, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or understood, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, that is Jesus his son, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when God said, let us make man in our image. You see, there is something divine about us as men and women as God has created us. We don't know all of the factors that make us in the image of God. We just know that we are. In fact, as we think about that, there's a couple of things that we can consider. There are several specific things in man that show him to be made in the image of God. For example, mankind has a, alone has a natural countenance that looks upward. As you think about the animals and the beasts and the creatures, uh, none of them really has a natural countenance. You know, when the scriptures say, especially in the Psalms, lift up your head. It's not speaking to the created universe. It's speaking to us as men and women. We have a natural countenance to be able to lift our head and look up. Mankind alone has such a variety of facial expressions. Now I know people like to study monkeys and apes and say, aren't they amazing? They have facial expressions too. But we have the most. We were created to emote and to have expression. Mankind alone has a sense of shame expressing itself in a blush. Mankind alone speaks an intelligible language. Mankind alone possesses personality, morality, and spirituality. 
And as we continue with that idea, there are at least three aspects to the idea that we are made in the image of God. Personality, knowledge, feelings, and a will. This sets us apart from animals and planets, and plants, excuse me. It means humans possess morality. We are able to make moral judgments, right and wrong. We have a conscience. And it means that we as humans possess spirituality, meaning that man is made for communion with God, and it is on the level of the spirit that we communicate with God. See, none of the created animals have any of these things. We like to sometimes see personality in our pets, and maybe they do have some traces of it, but we have knowledge, feelings, and will. We have morality. We have spirituality. We were created with these unique traits that we might bless God, that we might turn around and give God the glory. You see, in our day, there are many who say there's no real difference between men and women. This makes sense if we are the result of mindless evolution. But not if it is true that male and female were created by God. It says he created them. To God, the difference between men and women, the differences are not accidents. Since he created them, the differences are good and meaningful. Men are not women and women are not men. One of the saddest signs of our culture's depravity is the amount and the degree of gender confusion that exists today. It is vain even to wonder if men or women are superior to each other. A man is absolutely superior at being a man. A woman is absolutely superior at being a woman. But when a man tries to be a woman or a woman tries to be a man, we have something that is inferior because it is beneath how God created us. So God has created us. God has created us in his image. And it says that he created him, male and female, he created them. So God himself did the creating. God himself made the assigning. God himself decided what we would be like. And so God himself is the one who determines how we should be. On day six, as we come to the end of the chapter, it says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every herb, green herb for food, and it was so. Then God, God saw that he, uh, everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You see, God created these things. These things did not evolve. When you look at the earth, when you read the created account, and then when you go out with your eyes and you look at what exists, and you think, could this have happened by chance? Could this have happened by an explosion? This thing called the Big Bang. Could this have happened and yet there be so much order? In fact, those people who study just one small element of all of creation, the human body, look at it and understand there had to be a creator. There had to be a designer. Because everything in the human body, and, you know, and just as I expressed some things earlier about the universe and the, the tilt of the earth's axis and all those things, if we were to dig into the wonders of the human body, the heart, the lungs, the brain, the liver, the kidneys, all of the functions of our vital organs, and how everything works in a perfect synchronous harmony to sustain our lives. When you look at those things and then you lay that against the theory of evolution and you think about 
a big bang and you think about a, a progressive development from some amoeba or tadpole that came from a primordial ooze and you start to think about all that, that over the millions and billions of years, how could that have happened? It just doesn't make sense when you consider how the sun, the moon, and the stars move with such great precision. And they determine our seasons and the times. And remember for many years, long before there was any technology as we understand it or know it today, that people navigated the earth and planted their crops according to the times and the seasons. They told direction. And Jesus himself said, you look up and you know when it's planting season and when it's harvest season and what these things mean simply by watching the signs in the changes of the years. And you know when to do things, when to take action, when to prepare the ground, when to pray for the early and the latter rains. And yet God has set all these things into motion and they are like clockwork. And yet those who argue for evolution argue that out of chaos, order was created or order happened. Order somehow developed out of chaos. And yet as we read Genesis chapter 1, doesn't that make more sense? And doesn't that take less faith to believe that these things are true as God spoke them as opposed to a random explosion causing something that became this tightly synchronized, ordered universe that we live in? You see, God saw everything that he had made and indeed, it was very good. You see, prior to this, God said it's good. But at this point, ending day six, he said, indeed, it was very good. So this doubly emphasizes that what happens on day six is God created man in his image, that this was very good. It's like saying it was very, 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 very good. God is emphasizing in such a way that we would understand that God has done amazing things. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this. I'd like to read this short little story to you. It's actually a historical event. Evolutionists are not interested in testing if their theory is true. They simply believe once you ignore the creating hand of God... It's the only explanation available, so their job is to figure out how it works, not if it is true. Why is the theory of evolution so universally believed today? In the 1920s, a former substitute teacher in a Tennessee school volunteered to be the defendant in a case meant to be a challenge to a state law prohibiting the teaching of evolution in the public schools. The teacher wasn't sure, even sure, if he had taught evolution, but the trial went forward. Prosecuting the case was William Jennings Bryan, former Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson, and a three-time Democratic candidate for president. Bryan believed in the Bible, but not literally. He thought the days of Genesis referred not to 24-hour days, but to historical ages of indefinite duration. Leading the defense was Clarence Darrow, a famous criminal lawyer and an agnostic lecturer. Darrow maneuvered Brian to take the stand as an expert witness on the Bible, and he humiliated Brian in a devastating cross-examination. Once that purpose was accomplished, Darrow pled guilty on behalf of his client and paid a $100 fine. The trial was therefore inconclusive, but the, quote, Scopes Monkey Trial was presented to the world by sarcastic journalist H.L. Mencken, Broadway, and Hollywood, and was a huge public relations triumph for Darwinianism. People who believed in God's creation came to be thought of as fools and hicks, and evolution was given the veneer of respectability. Combine this with a strong anti-supernaturalism on the part of most scientists and educators, and today's acceptance of evolution is understandable. The same attitude is used to squelch debate and questions about evolution even today. 
quote, when outsiders question whether the theory of evolution is as secure as we have been led to believe, we are firmly told that such questions are out of order. The arguments among the experts are said to be about matters of detail such as the precise time scale and the mechanism of evolutionary transformations. These disagreements are signs not of crisis, but of healthy, creative ferment within the field. And in any case, there is no room for any doubt whatsoever about something called the fact of evolution. So this thing that happened in the 1920s, the Scopes monkey trial, is what ultimately catapulted evolution into our classrooms and caused it to be what we know today to be universally accepted throughout our educational system. I'd like to sort of punctuate that with a, a story, uh, and I've, I've seen and heard this many times, but there's a story saying that one day students in one of Albert Einstein's classes were saying that they had decided that there was no God. Einstein, who did believe in God, asked them how much of the knowledge in the world that they had among themselves. So they collectively as a class got together and discussed it, then they came back after a while and they said to Professor Einstein, hmm, we might have 5% here in this class of all human knowledge that exists in the world. Think about the arrogance of that statement. Einstein thought their estimate was a little generous, but he replied, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? And I think that's a great argument for us to consider today. When people come and they say, evolution is fact, creation is false, to ask them, what percentage of all the human knowledge that exists in the world do they possess? And I would doubt they would even say 5%. But in that balance that they don't know, isn't it possible that the Bible is true and that God exists and that the arguments as postulated by men called the theory of evolution are indeed false. And the biblical account that we read in Genesis 1 is ultimately true. You may remember the story of Job and how Job had gone through a horrendous loss in his life. And Job was searching for answers, but he had determined in his heart that he didn't want to question or in any way mar the character of God. But at one point in Job's journey, he reached a point where he finally said, why God? And in Job chapter 38, we find this response of God to Job. And so I'd like to read it to you if you'd like to know where it is. Job 38, beginning of verse 3. Now, this is God speaking, prepare yourself like a man and I will question you. So this is God putting Job on the witness stand. Now prepare yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you, Job? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? Remember God said in the creation account that he created the waters and there were waters over the face of the earth, but then God himself put the waters in a certain place and caused the land to appear. That's what he's referring to here. Who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth and it issued from the womb? When I made the clouds in its garment and thick darkness in its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And this is but a small section of what God Almighty said to Job, a created man like you and I, as Job rose up 
having questions about what happened to him and why. And God brought him to a place and said, aren't I in control? And again, I think this is timely for where we are in our history. We're at an unprecedented time. We're being told we have to stay home, that this disease, this, this virus can spread and we have to flatten the curve and we believe that, we understand that. But we're living in a time where this has never been done before, where the world globally has never responded like this to something. And God is saying to Job, don't you understand that I'm in charge of everything? The waves that lap up on the shore, they stop where they stop because I said this far and no further. Do you understand that the clouds in the sky, they, have you ever gone out and looked at the clouds some days and it looks like they're just riding across, across a piece of glass? You see, God has said there's a boundary. God set these things in order. Moses said something similar in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Psalm 119, it says, Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer this morning, we approach the scriptures, as I said back at the beginning when we began this study, that this is the word of God. And we take these things to be true, to be literally true. With great confidence, the psalmist proclaimed here in this verse and in many other places the inerrancy of God's word. It was right and not wrong concerning all things. When the Bible gives us history, it's right and true. The events actually happened as described. When the Bible gives us poetry, it is right and true. The feeling and the experiences were real for the writer and they ring true to human experience. When the Bible gives us prophecy, it is right and true. The events described will come to pass just as it is written. When the Bible gives us instruction, it is right and true. It truly does tell us the will of God and the best way for our lives. When the Bible tells us of God, it is right and true. It reveals to us what the nature and heart and mind of God are. That is as much as we can comprehend. Someone has said, when the plain sense makes good sense, no other, seek no other sense lest you end up with nonsense. So as we read the Bible, let's just take it for what it says. Let's understand that it is true. And then we have this amazing declaration, this proclamation in Hebrews chapter 11 that says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. You see, God took nothing and created something. God created light. God created the heavens and the earth. God created water. God created all plant life. God created all animals and creatures, both of the sea and of the land. And God created man and woman in his own image. You see, God did these things. And the word of God tells us that this is true. And this is how it happened. And I believe declaratively it's saying that it happened in six 24-hour periods of time. In the beginning, God said, God created. By faith, we understand these things. I find this much easier to understand and accept by faith than that some explosion happened and out of chaos ensued, ensued perfect order. I don't know about you, but I accept the word of God to be the eternal truth of God. This morning as we close, if you're struggling, turn to the word of God. If you need help, let us pray for you and pray with you during this time of 
isolation and separation. We'd like to maintain as much contact as we can. Uh, text us, reach out to us, email us, let us know how you're doing. Uh, send us your prayer requests. Uh, you can send it through Facebook. You can send it uh, you know, through the website. You can send an email. You can reply to the church emails. We want to hear from you. And we want to pray for you and love you and support you during this time. This morning, if you've never put your faith and your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, now is a great time. The only answers that you can find, the answers that will make sense, are found in the Word of God and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we bow our heads and just thank God for what He's given us in His Word, maybe you could take a moment and pray along with me and invite Jesus to come into your life. Lord, thank you this morning for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. We love you, Lord. We bless your name. And Lord, for those this morning who have never trusted in you, who've never believed in Jesus Christ and that he was sent by God, the Father, to be the salvation for our sins, to be the Holy One who would take on our sin, even though he didn't deserve it. He became a man. You sent him from heaven that he might receive the due penalty of our sin so that we through him could have a relationship with you and that your holiness would no longer be offended by our unrighteousness but that you would be able to see us and relate to us and accept us by the holy work of your son Jesus by his perfect blood which was the penalty for our sins that satisfied your wrath that we might now boldly approach the throne of grace and interact with you and pray to you and seek you and hear from you. So Lord, for those who have not yet trusted, may this be the moment where they simply bow their head in humility and say, Lord, come into my life. I accept the blood of Jesus as the payment for my sin. And I humbly give my life to you. Lord, make me new, a new creation. And thank you, God, that's the beginning point. That's the place where we can say that you start cleaning us up and making us whole and healing our mind and healing our heart. And Lord, we thank you for those this morning who are praying and inviting you into their lives right now. For those of us, Lord, who know you, we're so grateful. And we pray, Lord, for any that are struggling or maybe just wrestling with this this isolation and all these things that we're going through. May you come alongside them this morning and give them your peace in perfect measure and meet them where they are and show them the path through these things and show them your word and reveal yourself to them as any good father would do. And Lord, relate to us this morning and help us to understand you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.